Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Wednesday, May the 18th, 2022. It is currently 3.46 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. Now, I hope this will prove to be a dramatic conclusion, but every time I think it's going to be a dramatic conclusion, it it tends to to not be so dramatic, and, and in some ways, it usually... It, it's a disappointment. It it usually doesn't live up to the hype. I hate when that happens. I'm concerned that that's what's about to happen right here, but we will see. So here's what's going on. We have, well, this is a part of a series that we are referring to as sexual violence in the Bible, all right? So just so that you know, right from the start, we're going to be talking about things related to sex and sexual violence, things found in the Bible, that you may not want younger children to hear. You may, you yourself may be offended because we're going to talk about them in a very blunt and direct way. So this is your warning if you need to. Well, don't listen to any of the episodes in this series. And you may want to skip this particular episode, all right? So, so feel free to do that. Now, what we've been doing is we've been going through passages in the Bible where sexual violence is clearly evident in the text. Even though in many cases people kind of gloss over it or they don't really want to deal with how uncomfortable the text should make everyone. But guess what? The subject of sexual violence is an uncomfortable subject, but it needs to be discussed. It needs to be talked about, especially when it's right there in the word of God. We have to look at it. And and, and sometimes it bothers us because the people, well involved in the sexual violence are sometimes people that, well, we may consider heroes of the faith, people who are viewed as godly and righteous, however, engaged in some pretty messed up actions or activities, which once again demonstrates that our salvation has never been based on what we do, because if it was, no one would be saved. Our salvation is based off the finished work of Jesus Christ and an imputed righteousness. But we need to look at these passages and have these very uncomfortable conversations because if you look at the church, just just pay attention to news articles that really keep up with all of the sexual violence, sexual harassment, child molestation, all the things going on within the body of Christ. At times it can be discouraging and depressing, and and it should be. But at the same time, we have to address these issues well, directly and not just try to, it's, well, it's too uncomfortable. And look, if you can't talk about it from the pulpit, well, then turn on a microphone and talk about it and post it somewhere so the members of your church can hear a frank discussion about the issues. At some point, we've got to deal with it, all right? So I I just thought, you know what? We're going to just go through the Bible and look at every passage we can find that deals with sexual violence. And so far, so far, we haven't gotten out of the book of Genesis. We've made it up to Genesis chapter 19, and we've already had some very important conversations that I hope has been beneficial to someone. I know this is not a this is not the kind of series where you're going to get a lot of emails because I don't think anyone wants to deal with any of these passages, but but we but I'm still going to deal with it because I think it is necessary and it is important. My my job is not to try to figure out what I think the people want. My job is to figure out what I think the people need. And I think this is a necessary series. So we made it to Genesis chapter 19, and I was going to turn on the microphone, and we were going to just work through the chapter together, but I thought, you know what? It would be interesting to hear what a a, a big 
church, how they would handle Genesis 19. A a well-known pastor. Yes, the pastor is surrounded with controversy, but I just thought, you know what, this would be a good time to just listen to how another church handles Genesis 19. And the reason I chose the church that I did is not because of the name or the size. It's just, well, it's the one that showed up in my podcast feed. I I was just going through my podcast feed to look, look at something to listen to, and I'm like, oh, there's a sermon on Genesis 19. Oh, let's Oh, wait, that's Mark Driscoll. That's Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. Hmm, you know what? Forget that it's Mark Driscoll. Forget the rise and fall of Mark. Let's just forget all of the controversy. Let's just see how he is handling Genesis 19 in 2022, because he just preached this a couple of weeks ago. It was either the end of April, the beginning of May. He just preached this. So let's listen to a very recent sermon from a very well-known pastor How does he handle Genesis 19? So we started reviewing it in part, I think part four, whatever the last part was. Let me look here. Yeah, in part five. In part five, we started reviewing it. And as as what always happens when we review a sermon, we did not finish it. Now remember, in sermon reviews, I don't listen to them first. So I'm I'm responding and and reacting in real time with you. But what we discovered in, in the first part of this sermon was really kind of a a strange and interesting approach to the text. First and foremost, he spent about, I don't, I don't know, I don't have the exact time frames written down. So these are just estimations. It felt like 10 to 15 minutes. He spent a lot of time trying to explain, hey, look at what's going on in our culture with transgenderism and LGBTQ and homosexuality and Disney. Look at what's going on in the culture. And it seems like what he was attempting to do was say, look at what's going on in the culture and if we see what's happening in the culture, well, I, 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 he wants us to see what's going on in the culture because he wants to demonstrate that Genesis, this ancient text, is relevant to what's going on in culture. And I understood what he was trying to do. Now, the only concern I had is everything he mentioned was, was all, all the only thing he mentioned, I should say, will dealt with transgender, LGBTQ, homosexuality. And I, I'm just sitting there going, I've read Genesis 19. There's a lot more going on in Genesis 19 than LGBTQ and homosexuality. Why is it that he's really getting us to focus on that one particular subject when there is some really messed up stuff going on in Genesis 19? And one of the people involved in some of these messed up things happens to be a man that the New Testament refers to as righteous. That, to me, is far more relevant to the church then what the culture is doing, how, how do us who claim to be Christians, how do we handle some of these issues? I, I see it from a completely different perspective, but that's the direction he went. Then he kind of did a somewhat of a, a review going from like Genesis 1 moving forward. Then he read every word of Genesis 18 and 19, which was an interesting approach. Then he kind of did a, another review then he did, uh, he talked about the archaeological proof that Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. That leaves us less than 30 minutes for him to actually engage with the text. Now, it, it, so it's been a very, he spent a lot of time doing everything but actually dealing with what's in the text. So he's, he's given himself less than 30 minutes now to do this. Now, again, I'm not trying to be super critical. It's just a strange approach when you've got a chapter just filled with some absolutely crazy things going on. 
some absolutely crazy things. I did appreciate the fact that he started, you know, he, he took the time to say, hey, archaeological discovery seems to confirm that Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed by some kind of cataclysmic event, destruction, fire. Now, people may, may try to offer a natural explanation, but clearly the cities were destroyed, and that's kind of where we ended. So now what we're looking for for a dramatic conclusion is how is he going to handle this? Is he going to turn Genesis 19 just into a discussion about homosexuality? Because if he does... To me, that's very unfortunate, but we will see. Are you ready? Here we go. Mark Driscoll, Trinity Church, Scottsdale, Arizona. This was preached in the last couple of weeks. How does he handle this chapter that is extremely disturbing and definitely has examples of sexual violence? Let's see what we learn. Here we go. So let's just assume or presume for the moment that what Genesis is reporting is historical, actual, and factual. Then the question is, why would God do that? Even if you're not a Christian, you don't agree with me, you don't believe, just for a moment entertain the storyline of Genesis that this was an act of God, destroying people and also an environment. And the question is, well, what would cause him to be so angry or upset to pour out such extraordinary wrath? And let me say this, in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, like any city, like all of our lives, it wasn't one thing that aroused his wrath. There was, I believe, a prominent sin, and that was the sexual sin, but it included other sins. Um, We are here not far from the Mexican border, and uh, if somebody from a drug cartel is escaping into our country, it's not like they have impeccable character and they have a minor flaw of drug trafficking and murder. You either have good character or you have bad character, and if you are someone that has lost your conscience and you are operating according to just absolute base desires, you're going to have more than one category of sin. And the debate in Sodom and Gomorrah is this, those who are more progressive, those who are more liberal, those who want to suppress the truth, they will go to one of the minor sins in Sodom and Gomorrah, and they will ignore the major sin. And it says this in Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50, behold, this was the guilt of Sodom. And here's the list of their sins, pride, excessive food, their gluttons, prosperous ease, they were thieves and greedy, and they did not aid the poor and needy. So they weren't generous or helpful. They were haughty, more pride, and they did an abomination before the Lord. That's the sexual sin. So I removed them when I saw it. The point is this, there was a lot of sins, and the worst sin was sexual. Okay, now I have, I'm going to do this right here, because I think this is very important. And I mean that, that's not a joke. I'm not trying to joke around there. I'm just glad that he's acknowledging and reading the list of all the other sins going on in Sodom because so many times they get overlooked. Now, yes, and I agree that there's this really weird imbalance in the way people handle the text. Those who may be quote-unquote progressive or liberal will go run to that list and ignore the sexual sin. Those on the conservative side, Sodom and Gomorrah, the sin of homosexuality, and almost ignore the other. So one wants to go to, hey, look at all of these other sins and ignore the sexual sin. And on the other side, they just want to focus on the sexual sin and ignore the other sins. You have to deal with the fact that, let's just state it, this was a city, these were cities 
that were very wicked and there was lots of sin, lots of different kinds of sin that were present within these cities. All right. Now he says the primary sin was their sexual sin. Others will say their primary sin was this. I, I, I'm not a fan of that. I'm not a fan of saying which one is the most primary, which one is the most primary. I, I'm not a fan of that because I, does the text say which one was most primary? All right. I say this, that it was, these were cities that were extremely sinful and there were multiple examples of that sinfulness. There was all kinds and types of sins. All right. So I am very glad that he brought all of them up. I, he just, he says the main one was the sexual sin. I, I would have to, I would have, remember, I'm, I'm always reacting in just real time. Remember that that's the good thing about doing this, the bad thing. So I don't, I, I've got to be very careful because I don't want to say something dogmatic, but I would at least challenge you to do this on your own. Can you think of a passage of scripture that says the primary sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was sexual sin? The, the number one one, the primary one. Now, maybe there is. I'm trying to think, trying to think of, of where it'd be like, yeah, that's the sin. That's the sin. Um, I'm, if you can think of one, feel free, feel free to, you can post it in the chat or, um, and, or you can post it in the Discord channel or wherever. And I will definitely try to check all sources. Sometimes on the computer, the chat doesn't show up and I won't see it until the, the program is over. I will try to check on the iPad beforehand. But I'm just, I just can't think of where this was the primary one. There was a lot of one. And, and again, I, and I don't know where he's going to go, but my concern is, once again, the, 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 the sin that's going to get the focus is the sin of the city. I'm more worried about the sin of the man who's called righteous in the New Testament, right? The one that is supposedly, well, a follower of the true God, because he's engaged in, well, I don't know, just some absolutely bizarre and I, evil behavior. And, and, that, and I, I, don't, I don't have a problem with that because I believe as Christians, we can be involved in very evil behavior because we're still sinners. But it's kind of messed up. So, so like, I, like you can, I guess there's two ways to look at Genesis 19. Hey, this is a warning about homosexuality. Others could say, well, wait a minute. Is this a warning about homosexuality or is this a warning of where righteous people, righteous in position where people who are righteous in their position, righteous by faith, where they can end up. What do you think the greatest warning is? Or is it both? I, I, I just think if you sat around, if we were, quote unquote, doing the little small group or the little Sunday school thing where everyone gets to, you know, everyone puts in their two cents. It would be interesting to see what, what some people I think would just say, no, this is a warning against homosexuality, but I don't... I think this is a warning to those who are righteous in our position. Maybe I'm wrong, but we'll see where he goes with this. Now, many will come to Genesis and they will try to say that the sin was not sexual and it certainly was not same sex. The greatest um, argument against this erroneous conclusion is put forth by a scholar named Robert Gagnon. He wrote a book called The Bible and Homosexual Practice. It's about 500 pages. It is considered the leading academic work on homosexuality in the Bible in particular and also 
in uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And so if you're a bit of a nerd and you want to dig deeper, that's a good place to go. But let me give you the six reasons why we need to conclude that what really aroused God's anger and wrath in Sodom and Gomorrah was sexual sin. Number one. Okay, he's going to give us six reasons that the thing that aroused God's wrath was sexual sin. Now, now maybe he's going to give us the scriptural justification and then I will stand corrected because I, because again, I'm reacting in real time. It's not like I've, I've done extensive research and I have it ready to go. That's why I don't, that's why I don't, I don't listen in advance because then it would feel rehearsed. So I'm interested to hear these six reasons. Now he's quoting from a book. Now this is what we got to listen to. Listen. Okay. This is what I have to listen to class. All right. If, if I was teaching a class on how to analyze sermons, right? Okay, like if I was teaching a class on how to do film analysis, right? Well, this is how to do sermon analysis. What do we want to hear in these six points? What do we want? I'm asking, okay, I'm getting prepared for church tonight, okay? Because I, I like having an audience in front of me, right? But there's no one here. What do we want to hear? Out of these six reasons, I want to hear scripture. That's what I want to hear. I want to hear scripture. I want to hear a clear scripture that says the thing that aroused God's anger the most was the sexual sin. That's what I want to hear. Now, I'm not saying that sexual sin didn't arouse God's wrath. I just cannot say that that was the primary reason. Now, I don't, ultimately, the cities are destroyed. So it doesn't matter if it's primary or secondary. The cities are destroyed. I, so, I, okay, but... That's what I'm going to listen for. So here we go. Here's number one. Uh, since the earliest days of our language and church, um, ultimately, sodomy has always been interpreted and understood as a particular sexual sin. So that has been the historic and traditional interpretation of the primary sin in Sodom and Gomorrah. Number two, God. All right. The first one is just because the word Sodom is associated with sexual sin, same sex sin. So, therefore, the primary sin was sexual sin, just because of, I guess, a tradition, history. Okay, uh, I don't know if you know this, but within lots of different bodies of Christianity, there's lots of traditions and history that we don't agree with. <laughs> okay, right? Remember the whole Protestant Reformation? The sola scriptura, right? It's like, sola scriptura, unless we don't have scripture, then we go to history if it agrees with us. If it doesn't agree with us, then we throw out history. It, it just, sometimes I found it funny the way Christians play the game. Okay, so now I just find it interesting that number one, now I don't know if these are in an order of significance, but I would think my number one would be, there's the scripture. That's what I would have for my number one, right? If I was going to make this argument, I don't know. I still don't really know the significance of this point, but okay. Okay. Let, let's, 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 let's continue. Number two. Warned earlier in Genesis 12, uh, 13, 12 and 13, God, uh, we read this. Abraham lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. So God previously said the guys there are really bad guys doing really naughty, nasty things. Number Okay, but it doesn't name sexual sin. <laughs> so the scripture you quote doesn't say the primary sin was sexual sin. It just says that the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly, which I think exceedingly that they, they were sinning in many ways. All right. 
Again, I'm not arguing, I don't want anyone to confuse, I am not arguing that homosexuality and sexual sin was not involved. It was, but why, why, I want, it's just, this isn't, again, from a preaching perspective, why did he feel it necessary to include six reasons why, I, I guess, sexual sin was the prominent sin? Like, why, why, I wonder, he feels that it's necessary to do that. That's kind of, I, I would just like, I mean, whenever I listen to a sermon, I'm always, I'm always trying to take apart the preacher's reasoning or choice for doing something. Now, sometimes people will e- email me and go, well, why did you do this? Or why did you say that? And sometimes I'll be like, man, I don't know why I did that. Like I, sometimes I won't even think about it. So I, you know, I'll, I'll have to go, well, that was, you know what? They're right. That was stupid. Okay. Or usually before I get home, I've already decided that what I did was stupid. So usually I, before I get the emails, but, but you know, everyone, when you hear a sermon, sometimes you're thinking, well, so what's the significance here? I mean, I mean, really, how does it change your interpretation of Genesis? The primary sin wasn't sexual sin. The primary sin was greed, pride, whatever. Or the primary sin was sexual sin. How does that change your interpretation? Does it have, it, we talked about this on, I think, Sunday. I talked about a hermeneutical key. What is the hermeneutical key that the whole passage hinges on. Is he making the hermeneutical key to Genesis 19 that sexual sin is the prominent sin? Is that the hermeneutical key? Now, so far, he's not giving me anything to, to justify this position scripturally. Let, let's see what, he, what else he has here. Three. We just read in Genesis 18, 20, and 21. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down to see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Throughout the Bible. Okay. Once again, that doesn't say. Now he's going to say, I think what he's going to, I think I know what he's getting ready to do here because it says their sin is very grievous. Their sin is very grievous. Hang on. I'm going to look at a cross-reference. All right, no. All right, that's not going to help us. I I was trying to, maybe we'd have to look up uh, that idea of sin is very grievous. I think he's going to connect this phrase, sin is very grievous, with just the sin of homosexuality. Then this could be a good textual argument, but I would have to verify the accuracy of this. Uh, Again, I just... It's just so interesting, like, hey, I've got to show you that the, 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 the homosexuality is the story here. And I'm sitting here going, what about what? What about what he did? What about what his daughters did? That, that, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm just missing something. I, I don't know. But OK, let's see if he, if he can demonstrate that grievous sin always refers to homosexuality. I, I'm, I'm not saying that's what he's going to do. That's my guess. Here we go. When there is an accusation of wrongdoing, the Bible talks a lot about two or three witnesses. That's exactly what we get here. There's two angels and Jesus, so there's two or three witnesses. And what God says, there is such an outcry by all the oppression, the assault, the perversion, the corruption in Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jesus says, I'm going to come down and check for myself. I will be one of the two or three witnesses. Genesis 19, 5 tells us this, they, the men of Sodom, called out to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. 
I don't know how you could miss this. Um, and some will say, well, the word there in Hebrew doesn't mean sex. It means sex throughout the Old Testament. And in that same section, when Lot says, hey, don't assault my guests, assault my Okay, stop right here. So some would say that, that we may know them doesn't always refer to, he didn't go the direction I thought he was going to go. So he's not making a, a, a sound argument here, but let me, let me do this. Let me do this. I'm going to go to Old Testament, Genesis. I'm going to go to Genesis 19. What verse is this? Uh, verse 5, Genesis 19, 5, into linear. Okay. That we may know. We may know. We may know is, oh, I'm going to have to, hang on. I'm going to have to close the, uh, this app. Okay, here we go. I got to turn up the volume. It's this Hebrew word. Strong's H3045. Yadah. 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 Yadah is used 947 times. 947 times. All right. That is, and it is used in all kinds of ways. It is used, I mean, if we go through all of these, it is used uh, to know, to know, learn to know, to perceive, to perceive, to find out and discern, to discriminate, to distinguish, to know by experience, to recognize, admit, acknowledge, confess, to consider, to know, be acquainted with, to know, to know a personal, a person carnally. Now there, there's the one that we would look for. To know how, be skillful in, to have knowledge, be wise, to be made known. It goes all kinds of ways, but the only one to me that would make any sense in the context is, is they want to know them in a sexual way. That's the only way to understand this, right? Because if they just want to get to know them, that doesn't make any sense. So clearly this, is, this has to be, I do agree that right here in Genesis 19, it's about sex, but this still doesn't demonstrate that this is a, this is the prominent sin within the city. It demonstrates that they're getting ready to commit a prominent sin. But please remember, uh, the, uh, one of the, the person listening right now did a great job yesterday of pointing this out, and I'm so grateful they did, because I don't know if I would have even caught this. But remember, the, what's happening right here with these men surrounding the house and wanting to know these men that are inside the house, these angelic beings, and, and possibly a Christophany of, of Jesus, or, or well, the two, they're, they're, uh, the two angels, no, just the two angels, okay, I'm sorry, uh, the three show up here, but the two men, the two angels here, the, the men of the city surrounding the house wanting to know these two men, these two angelic beings, um, that's not why Sodom is being destroyed because the idea of destroying it is already in Genesis 18. So the, the, the decision to destroy the city was before Genesis 19. So this can't be like, this is the reason the city is being destroyed. Their wickedness was already so great that God was already moving to destroy it before you get to chapter 19. And that is a very, very important uh, textual observation. And I'm glad that that was made. So he... He's not done anything yet to prove to me that the sexual sin is the prominent sin. Now, you could say the, the sexual sin is prominent right here in this section of Genesis 19. I mean, I will argue sexual sin is prominent throughout the entire chapter, not just of the men, but of Lot and of his daughters. 
Okay, <laughs> so I think the whole chapter is filled with sexual sin, but I can't say that that's the prominent sin of the city because the city was considered wicked way before we get to Genesis 19. God was already moving to destroy it before we get to Genesis 19. All right, let's continue. Daughters, which is just a horrifying concept that will, I can't even imagine that thought crossing your mind, let alone offering it as an alternative. Okay, I'm going to back that up just a little bit. Okay, here we go. Assault my guests, assault my daughters, which is just a horrifying concept that will, I can't even imagine that thought crossing your mind, let alone offering it as an alternative. But what he says is, for my daughters have not had sex with any men. It's the exact same word. You can't get around the clarity of scripture. Number five. Okay, that's a great point. There's no question the men were, who surrounded the house was wanting to have sex with the men and with the angelic beings inside the house. No question about it. And Lot, I'm, I'm, I'm glad he acknowledges it, but he, but he, I, I hope he comes back to it. But, but, you know, I agree. What Lot offers here is absolutely disturbing. It's just, it's mind boggling. It's, it's evil. Hey, look, 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 don't take these men Take my daughters and have sex with them. Do whatever you want with them. All the men of the city, here are my daughters for all of you to use. It is beyond disturbing. And now I don't know about you. Whenever I've heard sermons on here, the preachers usually get red in the face and scream and yell about homosexuality. But the homosexuality, which is worse what well, Lot is off getting off getting offering up? I mean, I mean, I don't know if you can say which one's worth, but I get bothered by what Lot is doing because he's the one who's declared righteous. The the men in Sodom are declared to be wicked. So I want you to see this: that the wicked men are are wanting to have sex with these men, and Lot, the righteous man, offers up his daughters to be completely. I mean, there's no. I, I, I told you. I'm warning. To be raped by all the men of the city. The, so the wicked men want to forcibly have sex with the angelic beings, these men who came in. So there's a there's a sexual violence. They want they want to take these men and have sex with them. Clearly, and they're not looking for consent. So there's a, a forcible, almost sexual rape getting ready to happen. And lot the righteous man's solution is rape my daughters. Now, the wicked men are acting according to their wickedness. The righteous man, well, that's because our righteousness is positionally, and, and but pra- in practice, he's not acting in a righteous way. The, what, it just seems like we, sometimes people get so, everybody wants to run to Genesis 19 and say, the wicked world of homosexuals. And I want to say, the wicked world of a righteous man who offers his daughters to be raped by a, a, a city the, the all the pop all the men of the city i mean like i don't know the whole story like I, I, now he's got to get to that he i know he just mentioned it but man he he's I, uh, he's got to get to it because that i don't know that's what jumps out at me that's what's that's what bothers me I, but let's see where he goes here five there's a parallel account of Genesis 19 and Judges 19. It's a similar account. Similar words are used. Similar condemnation is given. And lastly, in the New Testament, uh, Jesus' own brother, Jesus. Okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. So he's, 
Judges 19? I'm, I'm, I'm a little perplexed about that argument. Okay. This is about the... Th this is a horrible passage. Um, <clears throat> let me see. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here. Okay, I'm reading here. Um, let's see here. Okay, I'm looking. He says it's a similar account, but it's not the same. Yeah, he offers up his concubine. And I believe the concubine, uh, yeah, uh, uh, Judges 19.25, but the men would not hearken to him. So the men took his concubine and brought her, her forth unto them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. When they began, uh, when the day began to spring, they let her go. So the men in this particular city, well, they sexually... I mean, there's no way around it. They rape the concubine, and it happens all night. Okay, so that, how, I don't know how that makes the sexual sin the primary sin in Genesis 19. I, I don't even understand that, that textual argument. Hey, there's a similar account, okay, but it's not even, it's a, it's a different, uh, okay, I'm, all right. We'll just press on. We'll press on. I'm, I'm not getting, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what he's trying, what point he's trying to get across here. All right, let's continue. Jude reflects back and gives commentary on Sodom and Gomorrah. Jude verse seven says, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns, absolutely what Genesis reports, gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of hell. So what Jude is saying is this, um, Sodom and Gomorrah is an internship for hell. Everybody's sinning, doing whatever they want, thinking that they're going to get away with it. And God says, no, fire and judgment. And what he says is, it's to warn the rest of us that if we live as they live, if we do as they do, if we think as they thought, we will suffer as they suffer, and there is a greater fire coming. Okay, now, I will, I think this is probably the best argument you could have, is that at least in Jude, Sodom and Gomorrah, um, they gave themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh. It does point out their sexual sin and it doesn't mention the other things. However, I've got other passages that mention the other things. So I still don't know if this, if one proves the sexual sin was the prominent sin. And again, I still don't understand what, what, how does this change my hermeneutic of the text? Is, is he making an argument that therefore the, the only sin that we should focus on is the homosexuality in the text? It can't be ignored, right? But to be fair, I mean, there's, I don't know, there's other sins going on in the city. But in Genesis 19, there's just not that sin. There's all kinds of, you've got, you know, let's say you have homosexuality. You've got, well, forcible homosexuality. You've got rape, the, the, the threat of rape going on. And then you have the offer of 
well, here, rape my daughters. And then you have, well, in a sense, incestual rape because the daughters get their father drunk. So he has no consent. So really, the, it's the whole chapter about rape. It's the whole chapter about s- sexual violence. And, 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 the, and if you think about it, what's bizarre is the men of the city are kept from engaging in the sexual rape at that particular moment. But the righteous man, well, he participates. And you say, well, it's not his fault. He got drunk. Well, he has no no responsibility and, and he, of getting drunk. And after he, it happened the first night, he gets drunk again the second night. I mean, I, I guess you got, I mean, those are the kinds of discussions I think we should have. So it's the whole thing. It's just... Okay, I, I'm still just trying to figure out what 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 point is he going to make? I'm assuming at some point when he's done with these six, he's going to summarize. When it comes to Genesis 18 and 19, we've really got three options. Number one, uh, Genesis 18 and 19 has been wrongly interpreted over the course of church history. I, I just kind of proved to you, you can't come to any other conclusion other than a bunch of guys had a bunch of perversions and naughtiness and the whole culture was corrupt to the core. It included their children and grandchildren. And so God judged them and brought it all to an end. The other two options are that Genesis 18 and 19 is a denunciation of sin in general, but sexual sin in particular. Uh, But this is an old book. It's outdated. It's repressive. It's bigoted. It's limiting that we have evolved, that we have progressed, that we've moved past this, that this is a sad chapter in human history. And we've entered into a more tolerant world where we don't have this kind of intolerant bigotry. The third option is it is unchanging. It is true. God is judging human sin and sexuality. He sent um, fire to judge. And if we don't repent of sin and trust in him, there's a greater fire awaiting us. So we really only have two options. And what I would encourage you is this, just practice academic honesty. Don't take the Bible do origami and make it into something it's not. Just have the uh, academic integrity to say, here's what it says. I think that's good or I think that's bad, but let's just be honest about what it says. And the big idea here for us is, for those of us who are Christians, is the Bible is not, as a friend of mine says, supposed to just be a binoculars where we look at everybody else's sin, but a mirror where we look at our own. And it's a good chance for us who are Christians because here's the big idea. Lot is a believer. That's what's terrifying and horrifying. You look at the guys in Sodom and you're like, well, they got problems. Lot's got problems too. He's got a lot of problems. None of them are sexually pure and clean. The believers and the unbelievers have problems. The believer gets grace and the unbelievers get judgment. But it's- Okay, now that's, all right, good. I'm glad, I'm glad he's pointing this out. Again, I, I still don't know why sexual sin has to be the prominent sin in the city. I think that, I think that I just, again, the way I would say it is I, I, I don't even understand what would be the point of engaging in said debate. Sodom and Gomorrah were wicked city. We're, were wicked cities filled with sinners. And the city had, was practicing all kinds of sin, including sexual sin, spe- specifically the sin that seems, the sexual sin that seems to be pointed out in chapter 19 is homosexuality, or you could argue forcible homosexuality, homosexual rape. 
You, you could point that out. But I'm assuming if they're trying to engage in homosexual rape, then that normal homosexuality would be practiced as well. I think that that's a fair assessment of it. Now, I but I do believe that the thing that should bother us and that it demonstrates once again, the righteous man and the unrighteous are both engaged in sexual immorality and sexual sin. Because I, 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 we sometimes, I, again, I think this is where the church messes up on sexual violence. We, we just seem to think that, well, within the church, there's no way these things can happen because we have this teaching that, hey, if you're a Christian, you just basically stop sinning. We, we're, because we teach that practically you're a new creature, old is gone, everything is new. But that's not true practically. That is true positionally. In practice, we are still sinners. So guess what's happened in 2,000 years of church history? There has been domestic abuse, physical, mental, emotional, and sexual. There has been rape. There has been fornication. There's been homosexuality. There's been child molestation. There's been sexual harassment. There's been all kinds of horrible things happening within the church, within Christian families, and within Christian ministries. It's just the reality. And we can, we, we, we've got to face that reality. And I think maybe Genesis 19 is the, is the, well, if you think about it, and so far in Genesis, the people engaged in some really like, wait, what what, what happened to Noah in that tent? What, what, what was going on there? Wait, what did Abram do to Hagar? Wait, what kind of, what was that? And now here in Genesis 19, Lot? Now, if you didn't know anything about Lot, you could draw your own conclusions. But the New Testament, the New Testament says he was righteous. And you're like, whoa, if that's a righteous guy, then... Well, we're in trouble. Okay. Who's unrighteous, right? Because this righteous man does some really messed up stuff, which demonstrating the righteousness has to be a positional one and not one in practice because this is nothing righteous about what Lot does here. So I, I think it's very important to realize that Genesis 19, once again, demonstrates that the reality of, of sin and unrighteousness, even within those who are deemed righteous by faith. And that is where the church has to realize that we, we always want to talk about how messed up the world is. The world, the world, the world, the world, the world, the world, the world. It's, we're, we're, we're right there with them. The difference is the unbeliever gets judgment. The believer gets grace. Not because the believer is better, but because the believer has, by faith, been given the imputed righteousness of Christ. Or the imputed righteousness of Christ have been accredited to them. That's the difference, all right? Let, let's let's see if we can bring the, still still this taking longer than it always takes longer than I think it's going to take. But here we go. It's not like Lot is morally superior. Uh, he's just given grace by God. And we learned last week in Genesis 17 that Abraham walked with God in covenant and that he was supposed to have his wife and their son Isaac walk with him in covenant. So as a husband and a father, it's to walk with God in covenant relationship with your wife and your kids and your grandkids so that there is integrity and holiness for generations. The problem here with Lot, he's a believer, uh, but he's not only in Sodom, Sodom is in him. That's the problem. And you can live in a debased, fallen, sick, perverted culture, and after a while, so much of it is in you that it's starting to affect you. And that's the story. Okay, now see, this is where that cause and effect thing is where I constantly find myself somewhat in conflict with uh, some elements of Christianity. And I know I always make people uncomfortable with this. 
Let me remind, he says, like, so it, the issue was Lot was living in Sodom, but Sodom was living inside of Lot. So, so the culture so influenced Lot that that's why he did evil things. And I, I just got to remind you of something. Cain killed Abel. What was the cultural influence there? So many times we're like, the reason Christians do bad things is because of the cultural influence. I, I just listened to a podcast. I just listened to a podcast on holiness. And, and, I'm, and I may grab some of it and do an episode on it. But their argument was you basically cannot grow as a Christian. You cannot be godly if you watch a rated R movie on Netflix. And I'm like, wait, so, so because it's almost as if the ungodliness is outside of us and all we have to do to be holy is keep the ungodliness from getting inside of us. It's almost like, it's, it's almost like we are, we, I, I've got a box right here. I got a box right here. Okay. And here's this box now in, and, and this box represents us, right? This box, I know you can't see it. It's a box. And, and this is the box. And all of the bad is outside of us. And it bounces off and bounces off. We just got to be careful that it doesn't find a way. Oh, I'll open the top of this. And it comes inside. Because once it gets inside of us, well, then we're finished. We're done. And I know the, the reality is, is inside my box is total depraved nature, a heart that's desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. It is what's inside of me. Now, I agree that what's outside of us can feed that, can encourage that, can entice that. I completely agree with that. But it's, it's just so many times, it's like, so what, what happened a lot was that Sodom got inside of him. Or what happened to Lot is that sin was inside of him. Before he ever got to Sodom, I hope I said that right. The problem, some say the problem with Lot was that Sodom got inside of him. And what I would say is the problem with Lot is that sin was inside of him. I'm not saying that, that Sodom did not possibly contribute or, or feed, but it's just, we have this really weird idea that, that the key is to keep all of the bad stuff out right? Hey, my kids are going to be good if I can keep them from, from all the bad stuff. If they don't see, uh, you know, a, a Disney movie, if they, if they don't hear a secular song, if, if they don't, if they don't, if they don't, you know, do this or do that, then they're, they're, they're already messed up. They're, Cain killed Abel before Netflix, before Twitter, before Instagram, before TikTok, before, before, video games, before rock and roll, before rap, before, before anything, because it was inside of him from the fall. So I, I, I just, I, I think, I think, I think this is what creates problems in the church is that the ungodliness is out there and we just got to keep it from getting in here. And it's like, no, someone needs to, you're going to, the phone's going to ring. No, the, the problem's inside the church. It's coming from inside the church. Where, 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 where is it coming from? It's inside of you. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. Yeah, your heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. Your heart, your heart. The problem is inside of me. All right. Okay, we'll get to keep going. Lot. And let's just say that we live in Sodom. Sexual perversion of every sort and kind is not just something that we need to get dressed and leave our house to go find. We can just click on our phone and find this thing in an instant. Here's what we know about Lot. He is sitting at the city gate. 
That is where the leaders sat, in Sodom. There's a woman in Proverbs 31. She's extolled as an incredible woman. And it says that her husband will be honored and sit at the city gate. He's not only in Sodom. He's a leader. He's a public figure. He's a business leader. He's affluent. And he's partly responsible for the culture in Sodom. In addition, his daughters he allowed to be engaged to godless men. How do we know? He says, God told me we're in trouble. And the guys just laughed at him and God didn't deliver them because they were ungodly men. In addition, uh, they didn't follow him as Noah's sons and daughter-in-laws followed Noah. So he's a bad family leader. In addition, when the men do arrive and they're trying to break into the home so that they can have sex with the new guys in town, uh, his answer is horrifying, shocking, terrifying. And that is, I'll send out my daughters. So obviously, Lot's not just in Sodom. Sodom is in Lot. At that point, any father should die before he allows anything to happen to his little girls. And then after they barely escape, his two daughters come up with a plan to get him drunk. So he repeats the sin of Noah. And he's so drunk and passed out that they lay with him and they become pregnant by their own father. So the big idea is this, uh, Sodom is in Lot. In addition, Sodom is in Lot's wife. God told him, when you leave, don't look back. Jesus said, no one fit for the kingdom of God sets their hand to the plow and looks back. They're leaving and they're supposed to go forward and she's looking backward. And it's her way of saying, oh, I miss our lifestyle. I miss our sexual sins. I, I miss our swinger lifestyle. Who knows what they were doing? It's not good. But what she is doing is she is regretting walking in God's will. She wishes that she could continue in Sodom and in sin. And God turns. He's making a lot of assumptions about her. I, I mean, I don't know if the text, I don't know if the text says all of, the, all of that. I know this. She looks back and she's judged. I know that. I don't know if she was looking back like, I would love my sin and I want to go back to all of the sexual sin. I mean, that's making a lot of, that's reading a lot of things into the text. I know as preachers, we, we are guilty of doing it. We like to some, we just start going. And next thing you know, man, we're just adding to the story by the second. And, and sometimes you just got to stop yourself and just go like, I like, I, she looks back and she's judged. I can't make, I can't say what's not in the text. Maybe I could, I could throw out my speculation, but it's just wild speculation. But I am glad he's going with all the sins of Lot. But I I just don't like the concept that the issue is that somehow Lot was a good guy, but Sodom got inside of him. And I'm going to tell you, Lot was a sinner who moved into a sinful city. Okay, that, Lot did not, Lot was a sinner coming into a sinful city. He just brought more sin into the city. Because look, whatever church you join, you bring sin into it. Whatever small group, Whatever Sunday school class, whatever pulpit you stand behind, you bring sin into it because we are sinners. We are sinners. I, I just sometimes it's this idea that, that, that we're the good guys, we're the righteous ones, and we've got to keep the unrighteousness out. So lock the doors, pull down the curtains, everyone hide in the dark. Let's keep away from the sin. It's in you. It's in you. It's in me. All right, let's continue.
turns her to a pillar of salt, which is curious because in the New Testament, Jesus says that God's people are supposed to be salt in culture. What salt does, it preserves. So let's say you take a piece of meat and it's going to die and decay. But if you salt it, it will extend its life. It will slow the deterioration process. God's people are supposed to be salt in the culture. She wasn't. And as a result, God turned her into a pillar of salt because she failed to do the thing that God sent her to Sodom to be. I actually don't think God sent them, but if they are there as believers, they were to be salt. They were to help preserve godliness. And instead, they had not only moved to Sodom, they moved Sodom into themselves. And this includes their daughters. So Sodom lives. No, depravity was already inside of them. Depravity was already inside of them. See, this is creating the the mindset. This is really creating the purity culture mindset all over again. That, hey, guys, hey, guys, hey, guys, keep see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil, do no evil. You're already evil, (laughs) okay? We've got to start our understanding from that perspective. We're already evil. We're already sinners. We're already there. I've heard parents so many times say, I'm not going to let the world get my kids. I've heard, I'm not going to let the world get my kids. And so they have 900 rules. And guess what? The world gets their kids because the world, and and, and I mean it in this way. Well, I should say this, though, I'm not going to let the world get my kids. And then they realize the world, the world has nothing on what was already inside of the kid. Like you try to keep the world away but the depravity was still there. So I've seen people have 900 rules for their kids. You can't do this. You can't do this. You can't watch this. You can't do this. You can't, you can't, you can't, you can't listen. You can't watch. You can't, I'm going to keep them pure. And then the kids grow up and say, forget this Christianity. They become dr- uh, drug addicts, alcoholics. You end up in all kinds of horrible sin. You're like, well, what happened? Well, because you, your, your focus was keeping on what's out, keeping out keeping the world out of them, and you seem to forget the fact that they were already dead in their trespasses and sin. They were dead in their trespasses and sin from birth. That, that's, that's where we start as, from a Christian parental, Christians sometimes just forget this concept. You start off from a Christian parent at a massive disadvantage. You're trying to parent a child from a Christian perspective who's dead to the things of God. They're, they're not only are they dead, they are in opposition to it. Now, when they're young, they will go along with it because you know, they're, they're gonna, you, know, they, you know when they're young, they kind of look up to their mom and dad and do what mom and dad does. But deep in their heart, there, there's an opposition to, to God. It's already there. There's a hatred for God. It's already built in. You say, well, I don't want the world to add to it. I can understand that, but whether the world is there or not there, the deadness of sin is already inside of them, and you can't fix that. You can't can't lecture that out of them. You can't ground that out of them. You can't put 900 restrictions to get it out of them. The only thing that will get it out of them is the gospel, and and even if you believe in 100% libertarian free will, or if you believe in the doctrine of election, guess what? You have no say in it, right? Because if their will is free, you can try to manipulate it. You can try to do everything you can. Well, then you're trying to manipulate their free will and they may go along with you to, to go along to get along, but it doesn't mean their will actually changed. 
So if you believe their will is free, you have very little to do with it because they can do whatever they want. They have the freedom of the will. And if you don't believe in the freedom of the will, well, then guess what? God's going to have to do it. There's very little you can do. I'm not saying we should not raise them in the correct way and teach them and present the gospel to them. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that what you have to understand is they start off dead. The deadness, the evil, the depravity is inside them. Inside them. in Lot, in his wife, and in his daughters. And they ultimately devise a plan where let's get dad drunk and then we can have kids with our dad. And from these two daughters come two people groups you'll see throughout the rest of the Old Testament, the Moabites and the Ammonites. They are bitter enemies of God's people. It's constant war. From these two godless gals come godless lines converse from Abraham and Sarah come Isaac, not a perfect family, but a believing family that leads to the Lord Jesus, though there is some grace that is given as there is one woman who is a Moabite named Ruth who is saved and becomes part of the family line of Jesus. And so ultimately, the question I want to ask then is, if we just look at this and say, okay, a bunch of guys got together and they wanted to have whatever kind of sex they wanted to have. Some of the story can shock and horrify us, but let's just boil it down to its base. A bunch of guys wanted to have sex, and they wanted to use it as an opportunity to sexualize their children. The question is, are we morally superior to Sodom and Gomorrah? Are we sexually pure and keeping our children in a position that is sexually pure? Of course not. And so the question I would ask is, why does sexual sin seem so normal to us today? We may see it a little more clearly in Sodom, but we see it a little less clearly in our own Sodom. So let me just read a scripture to you, probably going to offend you and maybe even get me kicked off social media. So let me just read Romans 1, 8 through 17. For the wrath of God, same thing we just saw in Sodom and Gomorrah, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Meaning God says no. And what it is, is it's not that we don't understand what God is saying. We don't like it. So we suppress it. We fight it. And even when it comes to Sodom and Gomorrah, it's like, uh, I know what it's saying, but I don't like what it's saying. So we suppress it. In social media, we would call it throttling and we'd call it cancel culture. We found creative technical ways to suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. They are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they came, became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, we're evolved, we're progressive. We are beyond those old days of bigotry and intolerance. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up. He let them do what they want. Same thing as Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah is a illustration of a principle in Romans 1. God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women, exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, lesbianism, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, homosexuality, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The point is this. Romans says you either worship the creator and enjoy created 
or you worship creation instead of creator. And if you worship created things instead of the creator, you end up worshiping the human body, nakedness, nudity, because there's nothing as beautiful that God made as a human body, and sex and pleasure, because there's nothing as fun and exciting for the human body as sexual pleasure. What's curious, here we are, 4,000 years removed from Abraham, 2,000 years removed from Paul, and in a February 2020 Gallup poll, 5.6% of U.S. adults said they are not heterosexual or straight. 5.6%. You probably would have thought it was 50% or 60%. In addition, that number grows as the younger generation is considered. Of those 18 to 23, 16.7% of Americans are gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender. The education, the, I would call it brainwashing, the social media throttling and agenda pushing is having an effect to where younger generations are experimenting and exploring more sexually. And let me say this, if you're born into a world, that world seems normal to you because it's the only world you've ever known. But if you were born, let's say before 1960, let me tell you how the world has changed. In 1960, we legalized the birth control pill and birth control. Prior to that, if you had sex, you might get a disease or pregnant. Birth control lowers your odds. In the 1960s, public education in America changed to what's called uh, values curriculum, values clarification curriculum. It used to be that there was an external authority, and you would learn about abiding by that external authority, and then the authority moved internally, so the highest authority is you. So whatever you feel is true, whatever you think is true, whatever you want to be true, that's true for you. So if you're a girl, but you feel like you're a boy, you're a boy. If you're a boy and you feel like a girl, you're a girl. And at the end of the day, it's not what corresponds with reality that everyone gets to define reality for themselves. Then we had the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s, all kinds of sexual rebellion. And what tended to be more hidden now becomes more public. Now, I just got to stop right here. Because again, he's going, he, obviously the emphasis here is homosexuality. The in- emphasis is homosexuality. I do find it interesting he stopped reading in Romans before we got to being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient, uh, to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, imp- implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death. I always find it interesting that all of those other things somehow get immediately just, hey, I'm just going to focus on the homosexuality part of Romans 1. I'm going to forget all of these other things. Whenever we, whenever we, in a sense, stop worshiping God, right, we turn from God and we focus on the creation, well, then our morality, well, becomes based on what we want, based off pleasure more than what God would want. But it involves all kinds of things, not just homosexuality. So, and I would also point out, he's going like back to 1960 and how everything changed. Let me just make it very clear. In Genesis, we have a... We have, well, we have homosexuality clearly being practiced all the way back in Genesis 19, right? We may have some weird thing going on with Noah inside the tent. We could, we could go back to discuss that. So this is present way before the 1960s, way before disco in the 1970s. Okay, all right, a little bit of a musical joke, okay. All right, uh, night before disco in the 1970s, before anything else happened, 
look, it, it, it was already present. Now, yes, we're, we may be in a society that is much more open and acceptable to it so people can be more open about it. But the, the, the homosexuality has been around, well, all the way back in Genesis, all the way back in Genesis. So just, I just, so society may say, hey, it's, it's okay. Society may say it's okay and it may be more acceptable. So therefore more people may experiment, experiment, experiment with it. But the issue has been, it, it, it flows from inside of us. It's the depravity inside of us. 1973, we legalize abortion. Now, if you're having sex and you get pregnant, you can murder the child. In 1974, the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders removed homosexuality as a mental disorder. Here's what's crazy. When I was born, 1970, homosexuality was a mental disorder, a clinically diagnosed mental disorder. Today, it's a civil right. That happened in my lifetime. Then we had the invention of pornography, and most of technology is driven by pornography, the internet, cheap digital filmmaking and distribution. Now we have lots of sexual abuse, we have sexual addiction, we have pornographic addiction, we have trauma. All of that contributes to confusion about sex, gender, and sexuality. The more porn you watch, the more pornified your brain is, the less you think clearly and biblically. Now we've got social media that is pushing an agenda. We've got cancel culture for those who would speak against it. And so here's where we've come today. And this is what I'd like to say. Today, sex is a religion. And it's a religion that is opposed to Christianity. LGBTQIA, those are denominations from the Christian perspective. They're different denominations within the same religion. Just like Christianity has evangelists who are trying to recruit people. This religion has evangelists. Join us. Put up the hashtag. Post the rainbow. Try the sexual act. We have baptism where people go public with their faith. The converse of that in the religion of sex is coming out. There are sacraments. We have baptism and communion. They would have sexual acts and also public activism. And the result is the conflict now is that the religion of sex is trying to get into kids ministry. That's what's happening. In every church, there's kids' ministry. In this religion, they're now trying to establish their children's ministry and their children's ministry curriculum in social media and in the classroom. Now, very compelling, very fascinating correlation, seeing it as a religion and liking it to how religion or Christianity works. I think that's fascinating. And this is some very good points here being made. Again, it's just, he's just turned Genesis 19. Even though he's acknowledged Lot's horrible actions, he's going to just focus on homosexuality, 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 homosexuality. And it has to be condemned, but Lot and the Lot... Lot's actions and his daughter's actions to me are just as egregious here because they're 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 the ones happening among well well at least Lot the righteous guys that 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 to me deserves as much attention but all right here we go we're almost done in addition what we have now is uh, a generation of confused Christians and George Barna a researcher says that 30 percent of millennial Christians identify as LGBTQ in a recent Newsweek poll. 
meaning they are feeling the pressure, so they are sort of participating in the worldview. It doesn't mean that they are actively engaged in the acts, but they're saying that they're willing to open as non-binary, open and affirming across the spectrum, so that they're not seen as intolerant. Well, and you may ask, why does this keep getting pushed in media and social media, and why is there this sudden rush toward corporate progressivism? This will kind of shock you. There are three large money management firms. They would control things like your and my retirement fund. They are BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street. They are completely woke, progressive. They are antichrist. They own upwards of 20% of most or all of the Fortune 500 companies, and they have redefined capitalism. Capitalism used to have shareholders, people who owned a part of the company and wanted to see a profit. They have added to it um, woke capitalism, which would be not in, in addition to shareholders, stakeholders, and these would be representatives from certain groups in the community that want to see the company and its money used for two things, social activism and climate change. So they are taking your money and using it to push agendas. That's exactly what is happening with Disney and other major corporations. And of course, the entire agenda is against the Bible. That's just the way that it is. And that's why there's this constant corporate and social media platform push. Well, let me get toward the end. Uh, how about we do this? We ask, what does Jesus say about Sodom and Gomorrah? I mean, some of you would say, well, Jesus was nice. He was loving. He was kind. And he was. And he is. He, he didn't judge anybody. Actually, he judges everybody. And, um, and, and Jesus would never, you know, do something like this. Well, actually, Jesus was the one there who sent in the flare to call in the strike from heaven. And... Jesus says this, Luke 17, 26 through 32, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. What he says is, when I come back, it's going to be like it was in the past. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot. Jesus talks about Lot. They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planning and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. It's strong. So it will be on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. And he says, quote, remember Lot's wife. Jesus says, hey, if you've read Genesis, I judged everybody once with water. I judged everybody a second time with fire. It was Jesus who went to Sodom and Gomorrah. It was Jesus who called in the fire and brimstone strike from heaven. Jesus came back a second time about 2000 years ago. He lived without any sin. For him, it was living in Sodom and he was pure and holy and right. Okay, I, don't, I don't like how he said Jesus came back a second time in his first I don't think you can say a Christophany of Jesus appearing before the incarnation was really a first coming. And then Jesus' incarnation was a second coming. Maybe I'm just being a little theologically picky there, but I, I don't like that. He came a second time. So then so then the second coming is actually the third coming. Yeah. Yeah. I, okay. J just getting a little picky there. All right. Here we go. Just and good. Though he was in Sodom, Sodom was not in him. Here's what's crazy about Jesus. He, he lived an adult male life on the earth as a virgin. We have a hard time even conceiving of a life that doesn't have sexuality. But God expects us to practice chastity before marriage, fidelity within marriage, and at certain points in marriage, health, deployment, travel, 
we're not having sex. And the point is this, Jesus Christ lived the perfect life, the best life, the most impactful life, the, the most incredible life in the history of the world as a virgin. Meaning, if you're going to follow in his footsteps, self-control is going to need to be part of that path. So Jesus died so that we can be forgiven. And this is the season of forgiveness where Jesus is in heaven and he's not sending down fire and brimstone. He's sending down love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. And he's sending down the Holy Spirit to help us. But there is a day coming, he says, when he will return and it'll be like the days of Lot. Everybody will think, Nothing's going to happen. Jesus will never return. We'll just be eating and drinking and sleeping around and carousing. And some of us will be passed out drunk, sleeping with somebody like Lot when Jesus shows up and the judgment begins. Let me close with a few things. Number one, the issue of sex outside of the Bible. It's a closed-handed issue, not open. Um, Ultimately, it's about repentance of sin and not tolerance of sin. And let me say this. Everybody who's ever read the Bible finds at least one thing that they wish they could change. Everybody. If we let everybody who read the Bible take one thing out, there'd be nothing left. Because everyone is offended by something. And so... That is such a good point. I've I've always... I've always had... That's what the thing that always drives me crazy, not just from a cultural perspective, but just anytime you get into a debate about things in the Bible... It's like, you know, well, if, if you want to argue about, uh, well, I don't, I don't think homosexuality is a sin. Okay, well, you, you get to remove homosexuality. Well, then others would want to remove fornication or adultery or lust. Uh, that, that's not a sin. Other people want to argue about, well, the Bible seems to imply that men are the ones who are supposed to be pastors and leaders. And someone's like, no, I don't believe that that's there. Okay, well, you get to change that. Well, then someone else could come along, well, I want to change this, and I want to change that. And it's, it's, it, it, you're, everyone is going to find something in the Bible they are offended by. Everyone. If you read the Bible and you don't find something you're offended by, then you're probably not reading the Bible because there's just like, wait, wait, I can't do what? Wait, that's a sin? Wait, that's a sin? Wait, that, 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 that? No. So what we have a tendency to do is either we just ignore the sins that we... <laughs> Well, I don't know. We, we, we play all kinds of games with it, but we, we can't do that. And I agree that, look, the, the Bible has things that, that condemns all of us. And either we just have to acknowledge that, well, I'm a sinner and I've, I'm guilty there and struggle with it, or we have to start trying to remove it. And if we're going to remove what we want, then we got to let everyone else remove what they want. And before long, there's no hell. There's no judgment. Um, I don't know. There's no sin. There's no right. There's no wrong. And everyone just does what is right in their own eyes. Yeah, I think that's in the Bible somewhere, yeah, but it doesn't work that way. I wish, I wish it, I wish in some ways, I wish, well, actually in some ways I wish it would work that way. But then if you read Judges, you don't really want it to work that way. All right, so let's continue. We, we got like just a couple of minutes left. What I would say to you is this, some of you are going to struggle with what the Bible says because you have trauma, you've been abused. And as a result, it's hard for you to even see sexuality as a beautiful gift from God need to heal from that. Some of you are very conservative and you're more conservative than God. So when the Bible has some freedom, it kind of freaks you out. You need to scoot over. If you're further to the right than God, you're sitting in the wrong place. For some people that go too far to the left, they want to eradicate things that God says. But let me say this, when it comes to sex, every single one of us probably has one thing that we're frustrated by in the Bible. 
For the dating couple, they're like, why can't we live and sleep together? Because well, it's fornicating. For the married couple, why can't we have sex outside of marriage? Because it's adultery. Well, if we want to have an open marriage, it's not an open marriage. Uh, it's, it's, it's an adulterous marriage. Why can't we look at pornography? Because Jesus says lust of the heart counts as well. Uh, for the person who is gay, for the person who is transgender, for the person who is bisexual, we all have our struggles. And let me say this, the world we live in, it takes quite an effort to submit to the power of the Holy Spirit to live a life of self-control without giving in to your desires because everything around you is like gravity and it's pulling you down toward those most base desires. In addition, we all know and love somebody. See, once again, everything around you is pulling you down. No, what is inside of me is pulling me down. The gravitational pull is inside. I'm so, I don't understand why Christians always place everything. Out. It's the, gra- the, the gravity is outside of you and it's pulling you down. No, it's inside of you. It's inside of me. I, I can't, so it's, it's always like, it's everyone, it's that person over there, they're, that, they're the problem, that's the problem, that's the problem, that's the problem. No, the problem is the one looking at, back at me when I look in the mirror. There's the problem. The problem is in me. I, I, I'm, oh, I don't like that. It, it creates such a wrong understanding that the gravity is outside of us. No, gravity is inside of The gravitational pull is inside of me and it pulls me down towards sin because I'm a sinner, okay? Remember, I'm not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner. sinner sinning is what's natural. Sinning is what's natural to us. To quote the great philosopher Lady Gaga, I was born that way, okay? Now, she's referring to homosexuality, but I'm born that way in this sense. I'm born a sinner. We can, I'm all, we're all born sinners. Whether it's a heterosexual sinner, a homosexual sinner, transgender sinner, we're all born sinners. We're all born that way. We're born depraved in sin. So natural action is that which goes against God's word. What's unnatural is following God's word. And that depravity stays in us even after we are saved. Who's disobeying what the Bible says? We all know people that are living and sleeping together, cheating on one another, doing things they shouldn't be doing. We love those people. And let me close with this, that God can change our desires. He can forgive us and he can heal us. And again, we know people. No, we are some of those people. See, Christianity always presents it like we know those people. No, I guarantee you some of those people are right there. You're looking at them. They're inside your congregation. The number of people in your congregation who look at porn, the number of your people of your congregation engaged in premarital sex, it's right there in front of you. The the church will never be able to deal with these issues if we always think it's someone out, out, out there. It's, it's inside, but we have to, nobody can acknowledge, nobody can deal with the reality that's in front of us. We have to create a fake reality. Um, I'll, I'll close with my story. So I was, uh, I grew up on the top of the hill and if I jumped on my bike and didn't even pedal and just rolled down the hill, I could go to a strip club or an hourly rate massage parlor, or a corner that was filled with prostitutes. That's where I grew up next to an airport. Now, I never did any of those things, just to be clear. But if I was on my bike, that's where my bike went. It literally went downhill towards sexual temptation. That's exactly where I lived. So 
I was sexually active as a teenager um, and then met a gal named Grace at the age of 17. She was a pastor's daughter. I was not a virgin. I thought, I'm doing better than everybody else in my neighborhood. I'm not sleeping around. I'm not going to strip club. I'm not doing any of that stuff. I'll just date a girl. And we started sleeping together. That was a sin. The Bible calls it fornication. It was wrong. I was no better than anybody and what they were doing in Sodom. So then, and she's a pastor's daughter, by the way. So now I'm sleeping with a pastor's daughter. So whatever you've done, I probably have done worse. Because sleeping with a pastor's daughter is bonus points for hell. That's how it works. So anyways, uh, we start sleeping together. And then she gives me a Bible. She wasn't walking with Jesus, of course. I go to college and I'm at a state university. I'm taking sociology, anthropology, human sexuality. And everything is telling me the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is what should happen. That those were good people just living the fullness of their desires. So then out of curiosity, I start reading the Bible. And I get to Romans 1, that section that I read you, uh, where Paul condemns sexual sin and base desires. And I realize that this book disagrees with everything I think. That section that condemns all kinds of things. I can't stand when it's always reduced to just that sin. It, It condemns all kinds of things. And it rebukes exactly how I'm living. And so I had to come to the conclusion, either... I'm going to come under the authority of the scriptures and ultimately Jesus Christ, or I'm not. And I came to the decision that Jesus is God, that he did die for my sin and he did rise, and that this book is written by God and it has authority over me. I have no right to edit any of it. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, I need to seek to obey all of it. So I go to Grace and I tell her, I said, hey, we've been sinning. She's like, yeah, I know I'm a pastor's daughter. I'm like, I'm sorry about that. So then I went to my pastor and I said, uh, hey, I'm wrong. I want to be a Christian. What do I do? He said, you stop all sexual activity until marriage. And once you're married, you be faithful to your wife for the rest of your life. So we're coming up on 30 years of marriage. Um, I've, I've been faithful to my wife. I'm telling you this. Without the Bible, I wouldn't have even thought about having any guardrails on my sexuality. Without the Holy Spirit, I eventually would have blown my marriage and blown up my family. Um, And ultimately, God has saved me, not just from hell, but from myself. And we are now entering into our 30th year of faithful marriage. The reason I'm recording this is we're out of state teaching at a marriage conference for the largest marriage ministry in America on sexuality. And we're finishing a book this week that is a commentary on the Old Testament book of the Song of Solomon. And it's about the pleasures of marriage sexuality. And uh, here's what I'm telling you. I'm not Jesus. I'm for sure not Jesus. And I need Jesus. And my sin was so great that Jesus died for me, but he rose and he helps me and he sends the spirit to keep me in relationship with him. And so what I would simply tell you this, my friend, is my goal here is to teach the Bible with a lot of love and compassion. Um, I know we've all got our struggles. I've got mine. You've got yours. Everyone's got theirs. And when it comes to sexuality, we've all got the areas that are really tempting and difficult for us. And I understand that. But I found that after 30 years that the Bible is right and I am wrong. And when I disobey the Bible, I not only hurt God, I hurt myself and the people I love the most. And I'm happy to report 
that after 30 years of faithful marriage to the same woman, I don't have any regrets and God's way is the best way. And I would encourage you to open God's word. I would encourage you to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to come under the authority of scripture. And I would encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit for help so that you can walk in the path of God. And ultimately, we worship a virgin. So obviously there has to be a way to have a great life without having a great sex life, if that is what it takes for you not to live out of your deepest, darkest, most debased desires. I'll pray for you, Father. Thanks for a chance. And there you have it. He's, he, I mean, I don't know. I, I, there, there, I mean, we're, we're out of time. So there's not much more I can say in regards to this. You've, I've, I think I've said everything I needed to say. I still don't understand why the focus became one thing when the whole chapter is filled with a number of issues. But you can draw your own conclusions. You can email me your thoughts, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. I'm going to stop right there. We'll be back if everything works properly live this evening around 7 p.m. And it's going to be Second Thessalonians chapter 2 is what I think we're going to work on in connection with our study in Matthew 20. So that's what we'll be doing at 7 p.m. So, all right, everyone have a great evening. God bless.